Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Athletic. Hello, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, where footballing strategy, tactical trends and data analysis are our priority. I'm Ali Maxwell, and with me today, the Giorgio Chiellini and Leonardo Bonucci to my Andrea Barzali. It's Michael Cox and Mark Kerry. Uh, hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Ali. Always enjoy recording this, this podcast, but yeah, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm very well. Chiellini and Bonucci, Michael, the bigger names. Barzali, the thinking man's defender. That's what I've always thought. I quite like the fact they had very discernibly different styles, despite being like a, yeah, a treble act. Yeah. <laughs> How are you today, Michael? Good. Looking forward to this pod. A couple of interesting topics. That's right. It's a, a two-topic pod. We're going to look at the evolution of shots in the Premier League, how the influence of data analytics has changed the way the sport looks on that front. And then a discussion about, well, it's hard to define really, the rhythm of the modern game, I suppose, and one Premier League team's way of manufacturing stoppages to help players manage the physical demands of a match. Uh, we've got some interesting things to talk about on that front. We're going to start with the evolution of shots by Mark Kerry, a big piece released on the Athletic site in the last week or so. Mark, I'm glad someone's looked into the evolution of shots because it used to be straightforward, Sambuca, tequila or vodka. And now there's all sorts. Yes. Yeah, I was going to give an office quote there to sort of compliment that, but I won't. With shots especially, the here I looked at mainly sort of shot distance and the evolution of kind of shot distance. Um but obviously in the, the age of expected goals and sort of the rise of analytics in, in recent years, there's so many things that can kind of go into the expected goals model. So like the angle that the shot is taken from goal, so what body part it might be with, whether it was a cross, a through ball, whether there were defenders in the way and things like that. But I wanted to just look at and hone in on one of the more obvious kind of variables, which was shot distance and how that distance in the average shot in the Premier League has evolved over the last decade. So I really enjoyed doing this one. It was really, it was really good fun. So I think most people listening to this podcast and interested in data analytics in football will know that perhaps the first wave of, of data analytics use in the game um, was the expected goals metric and the understanding of shot probability, the measuring of shot quality, etc., etc. Um, one of the conclusions was in the data, shots closer to the goal are easier to score. Shots closer to the goal are higher probability chances. However you want to frame it, it's, it's, it's not an extraordinary discovery but it has had an impact on the game as we know it and it has had quite a, a transformative effect on the game over the last decade or so um first question has there been a decline in the amount of shots being taken in the premier league since there was a greater understanding of the concept of long-range shots being harder yeah and, and as you say it's not overly revolutionary sort of 
statement to say that yeah the closer you are to goal the more likely you are to score um but it's also hard to kind of speak about the causality of the the rise of analytics to say whether it is because of analytics that there's there's been a change in terms of shooting behaviors and shooting tendencies but we could maybe find yeah a correlation and a relationship between the two um and to answer your question on has there been a decline in the amount of shots uh, there has so interestingly we're, we're seeing nearly five shots fewer per game when comparing last season the the 2020-21 season um, with the 2011-12 season so in 2011-12 um, we're seeing an average of 28.4 shots per game and last season that came down to 23.9 so it doesn't sound like a lot all that much but there has been a steady decline if you look at it season by season there has been a, a steady decline over the years um, and as I say is it because of, of analytics influencing that is it because just simply different coaching or is it just a, a quirk in the data I mean Michael might be in a decent place to, to comment on this uh, it, it feels obvious Michael that a lot has changed in the last 10 years and that the rise of data analytics has, ha has played a big part of it you're someone that's written a book about the modern history of European football going back decades do you also get the sense that you know, the changes that have been made in, in how the game is played and how the game looks over the last, say, 10 years has been notably greater than the previous decades. Yeah, I mean, I think it has had an effect. I think that's one of the in most interesting things about analytics for me is how it's actually changing the game being played, not just in terms of rating individuals and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it kind of relates to some other sports as well. I know you're a basketball fan, Ali, and when you look at the equivalent kind of thing for shots in uh, in the NBA that's had an even more profound impact in terms of players almost exclusively take shots from the most, I suppose, the most obvious positions. Mm. But uh, there clearly has been a, a move towards that, whether it's training sessions, whether it's incentives, whether it's punishments in terms of taking silly shots. Mm. Um, it is something coaches are aware of in, in various sports. Well, of course, a quite specific difference, Mark, is that in the NBA, in basketball, you are incentivized to score from range, from outside the box, to use a footballing term, with three points rather than two points for a basket inside the area. We don't have that in football. There is no extra incentive to score from 25 yards versus to score from five yards. So given that, presumably the average shot is now taken much nearer the goal, as well as the amount of shots being taken entirely having been reduced. Yeah, no, exactly right. And I think one other thing to say about basketball, and you could include baseball in that as well, is that it does lend itself to to be able to kind of do analytics just that bit more easy, uh, ease, more easily, I should say, because of it's a high points um, scoring game as well. You know, you can finish a, a game of football and it still be nil nil. So there's there's many things within football that makes it just that bit more tricky to to kind of perform, I guess, accurate analytics or or more reliable analytics, but. In terms of, yeah, that, that average shot being taken nearer to goal, that's what I found found really interesting. So I, I looked at the the median, so the average distance of a shot on goal um, in yards across the past 10 seasons in the Premier League. And you can see, again, that average distance of, of a given shot has come notably down. So in 2011-12, it was at 20.9 yards. So you could say just outside of, of the penalty area. Um, and last season, it was 18.1 yards. So 
you were to round that to 18 yards just on the edge of the penalty area. Um, and what I did in the, in the piece was plot the exact locations of those shots over time. And it's interesting to see the kind of the density and the, the volume of those shots and the, the shot locations. And you can see that high volume of shots in those central areas outside the D in 2011-12 and, and that evolution of it reducing significantly when looking um, at last season in, in exchange for a higher volume of, of shots within the kind of the parameters of the penalty area. So, of course, distance is only one variable one thing in terms of what goes into the quality of a shot that was mentioned before in terms of the things that go into an expected goals model but it's still interesting to see that the distance has come down i think the thing that stood out most to me in your excellent piece just to just to demonstrate what's changed over the last 10 years and particularly when it comes to how far out teams are taking their average shot from is that burnley in this season's premier league 2021 take their average shot from the furthest distance, 20th out of 20 for average shot distance. If you transplant this Burnley side into the 2010-11 season, they would have taken the fourth closest shots on average to goal uh, in terms of their average shot distance. I think that probably sums it up pretty nicely. The, the team taking the most or... Sorry. The team taking their shots from the longest range on average this season would have been the team taking their shots from the fourth shortest range uh, in 2010-11. That's pretty remarkable, I must say. It's, it's clearly a huge change. Michael, forget efficiency and understanding the game a little better and its probability. Is a reduction in long shots boring? Is it bad for fans, viewers of the sport? I don't think it necessarily is. I mean, obviously it means there's less chance of real great long-range efforts going in the top corner. But I think it, it means that teams are being a little bit more ambitious, if you like, in terms of trying to work the ball into good positions. And, you know, if you're wanting great goals, I almost think people have become slightly immune to getting excited about long ranges as much as they used to. And I think when you look at goal, goal of the month competitions now, there's so many clever finishes I prefer it like a clever, deft touch to just absolutely thumping it in from 25 yards. That's just a personal view. But So it I mean, hasn't had, this was the all-important question, it hasn't had a negative impact on goal of the month and goal of the season compilations? I, I would say not. I mean, I, sometimes I've watched goal of the month this, this season or last season and just thought there's so many real clever finishes that are kind of measured and are about accuracy as much as just kind of power. And uh, yeah, maybe it's just me, but... Um, Still a few long ranges for people to get excited about. But uh, I think some of the best goals come from passing moves or, yeah, clever combinations, clever finishes, that kind of thing. And I think football's moved more towards that. It'd be interesting to know to what extent this has been adopted, either consciously or subconsciously, by match-going fans as well. I mean, it is objectively fun to shout shoot <laughs> when the centre-back is is carrying the ball forward from the back but obviously there's less of it and there's probably a greater understanding of why there's less of it I wonder what percentage of fans still shout shoot per head than a, than a decade ago and I'm pretty sure I used to be a big fan of it you know it feels great it sounds great it's great fun and now I'm like a real anti-long shot activist like I, I, and I'm not happy about that. I'm sad about it. I, sometimes I will go as far as to say, no, no, don't shoot. I want to say that out loud. Don't shoot, you know, recycle, play the extra pass, try and get into a better goal scoring position. How bad is that, Coxie? 
even if we take the kind of analytics away from things for a second, I wonder whether just the change in football means there are few opportunities to shoot from long range. One, because I think teams are very good at protecting the space in front of their defence kind of 25, 30 yards out. Second, because I think there are few opportunities for defensive midfielders or centre-backs to just bring the ball forward uncontested from the back because of the rise of pressing. And even, I mean, it'd be interesting to go back to, the, you know, look at some kind of classic long-range strikes from 20 years ago and look at precisely how the situations came about because it feels to me like there used to be a lot of situations where there'd be a cross into the box, the ball would be headed away, and you'd have a situation where the commentator would say the ball was begging to be hit, you know, that kind of thing. When was the last time we saw a ball begging to be hit? I bet it hasn't happened for, you know, happens less because you have less crosses. The defenders are probably heading the ball away, hopefully less than before. So I think there's probably just been a change in just the opportunities to shoot from long range before you even bring decision-making into it. Do you know what, as well, kind of going back to the the shoot thing as well, it was that across the past 10 seasons, the the shortest average distance of a, of a given shot in the past 10 seasons was actually last season, which was when, for the large part, there were, there were very few fans, ah. which I thought could be interesting <laughs> as well because the, how much of the influence of the fans yelling shoot could then have kind of lent itself to maybe a slightly higher average. For, for that, I don't actually have any sort of statistical actual knowledge of, <laughs> of that relationship between fans and shot distance but I, it could I be think we'd need I think we need some personality analysis there as well because immediately uh, Tony Rudiger comes to mind for me he cannot <laughs> he just can't resist he's like it's like an order for him um, which is well either fun or uh, ineffective depending on how you look <laughs> at things um, I, going back to Michael to to the ball begging to be here I mean that was also a sort of uh, a sort of co-commentator style of the time as well, I think, which might have left uh, alongside well one very particular co-commentator from from the from yesteryear. Always seemed to want to give the ball, you know, both a, a personality and a voice, and a very inquisitive one as well. Always asking questions, um, and I think that has certainly been reduced in the game as well. The, the good news, Mark, is fewer shots does not mean fewer goals. So, if a fairly basic view of how entertaining is football is how many goals are we seeing? We're all good on that front. Yeah, and that's certainly what I deem to be the fun thing is that there isn't <laughs> that significant you know, drop-off in the number. And I looked at the, the number of non-penalty goals here because penalties can obviously skew the overall average, but there isn't that significant drop-off in the number of non-penalty goals across the, the past um, decade, as I say. So it's, it's hovered between 2.4 and 2.6 goals per game uh, across the past decade um, and never kind of outside of that as well. So there's been a slight variation, as you'd expect, but not quite in the same decline that we've seen in, in terms of shots. So, yeah, I suppose it does reinforce the point that the reduction in shot volume hasn't come at the expense of, of the goal volume. So the shots themselves must, I guess, therefore be of, of higher quality mm -hmm. on average um, compared with previous years from last season going back to a decade ago. Another interesting parallel with the NBA, Michael, is that one of the conversations that's come as a sort of backlash to the rise of analytics, um, which has meant shots really being taken in two very specific areas either right next to or underneath the basket or from three-point range um, from long range if you will has been that because almost by now every team has adopted the analytics approach there's now no real variation in team style it's all become a little samey a little uniform too many teams only taking shots from range or trying to get the ball under the basket to, to get those high probability shots and and again so i'm coming back to the sort of 
the viewing pleasure or the entertainment factor is that there's less um, there's less variability in team style. Do you think that's happened to a similar extent in the Premier League or have we still got a sort of varied menu of team styles? No, I'm not sure it has happened. I still think there's a variety of styles in the Premier League. I mean, the one that is basically going out the window, if you like, is, is kind of old school long ball football, which I suppose is funny because of all the styles of football, that was the one most concerned with territory rather than possession and what we're talking about is territory so no I mean I still think there's a big difference in terms of how City play how Liverpool play how Chelsea play to a certain extent I think there is some level of variety there Um, I suppose all broadly what 10 years ago would be considered positive football I don't think there's too many big sides in particular that can play defensively Um, but whether that's because of analytics I'm not sure I think that's possibly just due to you know, the the taste of fans and, and the widespread demand for entertaining football. I'm not sure we can really pin that on the uh, analytics people. But it is hard to imagine, you know, any top modern manager rejecting the vo- the value of, of football analytics in their decision making. So, you know, I guess there is definitely a sense that analytics is, is impacting. Oh, hold on, let me go back here. Uh, it's interesting you say that because Mark's piece was inspired by someone tweeting, why aren't players shooting? I blame the coaching. It's slowly <laughs> being coached out the game by the likes of Guardiola, Arteta and Rogers, who I think would be delighted to be mentioned in the same <laughs> breath. Uh, and I suppose in a sense, you know, it is hard to imagine any top modern manager rejecting the value of football analytics in decision making. So I guess that was kind of a fair point in a sense. Analytics has impacted the way teams train and are coached. Maybe this isn't the point of your question, but it's inter- I mean, you look at Guardiola's Manchester City and they do have a tendency to work the ball into good shooting positions. But also, I mean, Rodri shoots a lot from range. De Bruyne shoots a lot from range. Mares to a certain extent. Sterling seems to do it more than he used to. Giacancello. So they have got players who can pull the trigger from range. And I suppose maybe it opens up more for them than other teams because teams tend to defend very deep against them. So maybe there's more chance you can get a pocket of space 25, 30 yards from goal, albeit with defenders on the, in the way of the ball. Yeah, and I think it was interesting to go back to that quote that they that they blame the coaching as though it does have a, a negative <laughs> influence when ultimately it's hopefully leading to, to better football. But you're right, Michael, there's obviously going to be variation and some even the top teams like Manchester City are going to shoot from range. I, I think it's something I think I've spoken about before in this podcast of of just how much influence analytics does actually have within a club and how much it's kind of filtered from from the sort of numbers that I can give in terms of 0. point whatever per 90. How much that, you know, that number is actually filtered down to the, the key coaching staff just in terms of playing football language as well and having that buy-in. So obviously managers don't really want to have to sift through loads of numbers per 90. They just want to know, well, what is the, the main thing I need to know here based on your complex statistical analysis? So it's it's when it's delivered in the right way, hopefully that you can then see that influence on the pitch from the analytics staff in the club right the way through to what you see on the pitch. Could I just ask a, a- Slightly odd question. It's interesting you talk about per 90 stats, Mark, because that in general, I know this is a real kind of Luddite point, but when it's per 90 stats and the thing is naught point something, it always just seems really unattractive to me. Has there ever been a kind of shift towards looking at it per 38, is in per 38 games in terms of if you, if you play this player every minute of the season, he'll give you 17 
through balls or something because it just seems more quantifiable than 0.3 per game or whatever do you know what I mean yeah and that's that's the key challenge obviously of making sure that it's explained and delivered in in the right way I think that from a sample size perspective obviously you want to basically have a leveler in this case the per 90 is the way to kind of make it an even playing field you could do things which is often done per 100 touches so how much you know a certain player has a propensity to to do a certain action as you say you could do it per season the more information the more data you have on anything I suppose the more confident you can be in in that sort of conclusion so um, yeah it, providing it's delivered in a in a more of a digestible way if it is naught point something as I say and and that's not that doesn't lend itself very well to the coaching staff then it's not useful you can say all these per 90 stats all you like but if it's not actually going to be useful to the coaching staff then then how can you actually implement it so you're right if it's if it's not understandable then then it's of no use Mm. We should mention, it feels like we've been bashing the the very concept of a long shot. Mark, they're not completely banned uh, in the analytics sphere. I sort of feel like since the initial decree that long shots are quote-unquote bad shots, there has been a little bit of, uh, of kickback, uh, you know, maybe a bit more thought applied to it. Yeah, completely. There's, there's other factors that come into play there as well because passing instead of shooting from distance could then reduce the likelihood of a goal from that attack because if if a player picks it up on the the edge of the area decides to pass it goes out wide and then that player is is tackled then that attack completely breaks down and you have zero chance of, <laughs> of scoring a goal from that specific sequence of play so at times it's still worth having a, a lower value shot than than not having one at all um, and, and long shots themselves can lead to to higher value shots in the following actions. So it, it can be worth it. So, for example, that long shot could deflect and fall to a teammate in a higher value area, which which isn't too uncommon. We see that quite a lot. It could deflect and, and wrong foot the keeper and, and go in, which, of course, is is a value. It could go out for a corner, which then you can maybe get your, your barely centre backs to, to come in, even though we know that the likelihood of a corner being scored is about two or three percent so maybe not much in it there or of course the shot could go in who knew a long <laughs> shot could actually go in so um yeah it's not say to to remove all long shots completely but um yeah there's pros and cons to both i feel like the worst crime is a, a long shot that's obviously going to be blocked or has you know a defender very close to the shooter in front of the ball because of course that raises the worst possibility of being vulnerable in transition. You don't know where that deflection or that block shot might end up. And if you're not sure what the structure's like behind you, well, then you could get into some real hot water. So uh, it, it's an interesting one. Uh, Michael, when we when I was thinking about this beforehand, I was trying to work out whether, you know, uh, shots uh, being taken, fewer shots being taken from range, and f more shots being taken closer to goal. Has this made things easier or harder for defences and for coaching defensive structures it's it sort of there's less need to get out to a player to close down a shot from range so staying in shape you know seems a little like the easier option then again I guess more bad shots from range being taken means less or fewer dangerous attacks to defend yeah I'd say the latter I probably would need to ask a, an actual ex-defender about this but I mean when I when I was playing eleven aside, if I was playing in defence and someone was shooting for thirty yards, I was kind of happy to fine. All you day, just have to close all day, guys, yeah, all well, day. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you have to close them down, but you're kind of happy for them to shoot and just turn around, and it's up to the keeper. Whereas if, if they're constantly probing and constantly playing passes in and around you, and you're having to turn and make decisions all the time, I think that's pretty much more difficult for defenders. So, 
I'd say it's probably made defending a bit more complex, certainly in terms of how much you have to think, which I think is the the difficult thing and sometimes the, the draining thing about defending. Yeah, and I wonder whether the anything from analytics has actually influenced defenders' decision-making, whether anyone on the coaching staff has sort of said that to them. I don't know if it's just me and my sort of confirmation bias, but I've seen, for example, Virgil van Dijk kind of allow the strikers to have a shot and know that he's got a world-class goalkeeper behind him. And it's like, if I actually give them a give my goalkeeper the best chance of saving it by giving it, you know, allowing the opposition to have a clear strike on goal, then they're not really, there's less likelihood that they're actually going to score. And it feeds into something wider for me that I don't think in the region of about 30 yards, if a player is shooting from a free kick from 30 yards, I would maybe argue that you shouldn't have a wall so that you can give the goalkeeper as much sight as possible. Now, Mm. the opposition then might try and disrupt it in another way. But I think if you can score from 30 yards from a, from a set piece then you've just done exceptionally well and I don't think that it's yeah it's anything to do with the, the goalkeeper there but maybe that's just my opinion I feel like this exact discussion was being had albeit not consciously after a clip during the Liverpool Inter Milan Champions League game where Trent Alexander-Arnold yeah. appeared to move out the way of a Perisic shot which went just over the bar towards the end of the game there was a lot of criticism about how that showed Alexander-Arnold was a poor defender and not willing to engage or, or put his foot in where it where it hurts and then quite a fun backlash saying well actually he was probably more worried about the little reverse ball to, to the to the man running uh, down the side who who may have ended up with a much more high-quality chance. And as you say, Mark, perhaps giving Allison a better view of the shot by not obscuring his line of sight um, would have helped as well. It's a, it's a really, really interesting discussion. My last question on this, Michael, is more about how we rate players and what we rate in players um, with this uh, change in shot location in the game. For, for example, a, a central midfield player... You know, some of the most lauded central midfielders of the last decade, I'm thinking more specifically about Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard and co. It was their goal threat from outside the box, their shooting from range that that was often held up as their most important skill, their most important contribution to their team. But nowadays, I feel like that's become much less important in how we rate players. Someone like Kevin De Bruyne, for example, he is a threat from range with both feet. But he's not really, that's not really considered his most important skill set compared to, let's say, his chance creation. Yeah, it's true. I mean, um, yeah, those players were kind of goal-scoring midfielders, weren't they? And and weren't just midfielders who scored goals, but they also scored literally from midfield some of the time. So, yeah, you're right. There has been a maybe a slight shift away from that. I think probably the, the equivalent now is players who can shoot from, I suppose, pockets of space, in maybe tight situations on the edge of the area. I think of maybe Emil Smith-Rowe is someone who does that very well. He's, I can't remember him scoring any real thunderbolts from 25 yards, but he's, he's a, clearly a good shooter, a good finisher from situations that aren't kind of point-blank range, obvious big chances. So, yeah, you're right. It probably has gone out of the game a little bit. I think with the, the Gerrard and, and Lampard and Scholes, you could include in that, those sorts of examples from long-range shooting, there was obviously not quite as much data collected at, at that time to say... Maybe there's something of an outcome bias. We obviously remember the the highlights reel and the the goals on YouTube of, of all of these players, but how many of those were just blazed over the bar or, or completely mishit or blocked or whatever it is? And this is why it'd be interesting to see the actual percentage of even shots on target from range of these sorts of players versus the actual, yeah, the goals that we remember. So that's, for me, why I really like data because it takes out all of that opinion and just keeps it, keeps the card, the hard, cold facts 
um, you know, at the forefront and actually shows maybe the yeah the likelihood that a player will score of the total shots that they take, not just the ones we mm. remember. Cristiano Ronaldo free kicks spring to mind when you mentioned that yes. as well. Uh, I'm, I'm going to call that nostalgia bias, by the way. You're calling it outcome bias, but I think we yeah. can we can yeah. put a bit extra on it when it comes to football. There's a great nostalgia bias. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, where in part two, we're going to discuss Southampton's use of manufactured stoppages and a few more thoughts on the flow of the game. That's next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, Mark, this topic stemmed from a really interesting piece by Dan Sheldon, who, who covers Southampton for The Athletic. And it was it was one of those that drops and you think, I have to give this a read because it's just something a bit different, specifically looking at their use of, of manufactured stoppages, as I'm calling it, particularly uh, the taking on of energy gels. Yeah, it felt very The Athletic, didn't it, in terms of its sort of observation. But um, yeah, Danny did some great work. Um, so he basically highlighted that a Southampton player at, at the time the piece was written has received medical attention from the physio on the pitch 14 times out of the 24 games thus far um, in that season between the 60th and the 70th minute, which then led to to the rest of the players getting their, their energy drinks, their gels and, and tactical instructions as well from the sideline, which was interesting. So yeah, really interesting finding. Um, indicative of the the small gains that teams can maybe look to have within the game and, and exert some control from the from the manager. I thought from the energy drink perspective, I mean Ralph Hasenhutl has previous links with with the Red Bull setup, so I hope it's not some weird marketing campaign from him. Um, I think it is just <laughs> about getting energy on board. Um, it, it, it was. Piece. It was a good piece, very, very athletic, as you say, very on brand. Uh, I dare say the follow-up will be an interview with the the parents of one of the energy gel sachets and <laughs> tracking their rise from you know just glucose to to something uh, you know much more impressive. Uh, Michael, it was interesting, wasn't it? And it, it kind of raised questions of sportsmanship, good or bad, time wasting, good or bad. Uh, do you think this sort of thing should be applauded as a, a smart? marginal gain or should this be something that we discourage well i suppose it's both i suppose it is smart if it's helping southampton um i'm i'm slightly reluctant to pile in on them because it's it's basically a form of time wasting and i think lots of teams time waste at various points in games for various reasons so i don't think there's a need to go overboard on that but i do think it opens up an interesting question about stoppages in games um and how much of how much of the 90 minutes the ball is in play how much teams uh, have an ability to break up play and some little kind of innovations in recent years that have 
just contributed to more stoppages, whether that's VAR, whether it's more substitutes, whether it's the drinks breaks that we have in some games now. I think that's all up for discussion about whether that's a good thing for football or not. Some interesting quotes in the piece from Phil Hayward, who's a, an elite sports physiotherapist, used to work for Wolves' medical department. You know, he says it happens all the time. It's part and parcel of the game. Also makes a good point. You can't ever prove that the player isn't injured. So that's a bit of a grey area with this as well. Uh, and then says, if I was at a team and I saw it happen, I'd probably think it's a great idea and let's do it to ourselves. So fair play to them rather than complain. You're better off learning from it and trying to replicate it. You know, Michael, part of this comes down to whether the players themselves need more periods of, of rest to take on, let's say, fluids that can help them finish the game in, in peak physical condition, whatever it might be. In general, you're someone that doesn't want to see too many rule changes or innovations, if you will, to, to make stoppages in the game more frequent. Yeah, I mean, that's my main issue here. I think football needs a constant rhythm. Um, I'm less concerned with it being constantly high tempo, you know, every every action in the game really being really high tempo. Um, I'm more concerned with just, yeah, you need a kind of rhythm. You need a constant, you need constant football, basically. I mean, every time I watch a game or a first half in particular, where I'm completely absorbed by it, and I think this is a brilliant game, there's always no stoppage time or maybe one minute stoppage time. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who's kind of noticed that trend. Um, so, yeah, I think the more football is broken up, the, the worse the games are in general. And I mean, I don't disagree with what the, the guy you just quoted there says, but it's one of those things where if there's no, if it's not frowned upon at all, if there's no taboo around it, then everyone completely does it and the game becomes farcical. So it's not that I really strongly object to what Southampton are doing, but I think there has to be some level of objection to it. Otherwise, it, it the game becomes completely disjointed. Yeah, I, I do agree with Michael in, in terms of that rhythm and that momentum in the game. And one example I remember from, from Tom Warville, who obviously we spoke about again last week, um, he mentioned it after the project restart um, a couple of seasons ago now that, of course, that was an enforced change in terms of the drinks break that happened there. But there was a very noticeable um, shift in momentum in the, the Wolves versus Arsenal game. So in the second half, having the drinks break completely disrupted the, the momentum of Wolves's essentially touches in the, the final third. And whether or not that would have changed it itself just with the natural momentum of the game or, or not, I don't know. But it seemed like a kind of manufactured break in play completely disrupted the the momentum of the game so when it feels yeah manufactured like that it's, it's quite mm -hmm. difficult to to take as a fan it's interesting isn't it because michael there's a, a player welfare angle here as well in that there is an argument that the game is it's probably not an argument scientifically by the way that the game is more intense these days the demands physically on the players are much greater and certainly in recent months as well, a, a discussion about the football calendar and the demands of the current elite football calendar leading to greater physical stress and strain for the players. Yeah, I mean, I, I do understand that. And, and obviously the, the player welfare thing is, is important, but this idea that the game is just getting faster and faster and faster and we have to put up with that and make allowances for it. I mean, for me, football is about playing it sustainably. You have to do it over the course of 90 minutes and you have to do it over the course of 38 games. And if the tempo has to decrease because of that. For me, that's just a part of the game. I mean, if, a, if a, I realise it's a, lud a ludicrous analogy, but I'm going to use it anyway. If you're trying to get a two-hour marathon, if you're trying to run a marathon under two hours and you say, well, I have to run it about four minutes 30 for every mile, but I'm going to need to sit down halfway through. 
or I'm going to need to I'm going to need to do it in quarters. I'd say, well, no, that's not the point of running a marathon. The point is to do it in in the allotted time. For me, football is a similar concept. You can't have constant breaks because you need to sustain the tempo. The tempo must be a little bit slower if you're not able to sustain it. In terms of making you know some allowances for uh, players and their sort of in-game recovery, their their the, the way of staying on top of things physically. Do, do you think a mandatory drinks break like we had in COVID times so that everyone can get some gels, not just the Saints players, would that be fairer? Well, I think we have a half time. I think that's, personally, I think that's fair enough. I mean, the, I understand it in really hot temperatures, there is a, a, a medical need, I think, for drinks breaks. But to have it every game, I, I actually thought it had a really bad impact on, on the level of football, actually. And, and I was so pleased to see the back of drinks breaks. Again, I, I don't want to overlook the player welfare issue, but I think there is a a significant downside to all that. Okay, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Next on the agenda with Michael Cox and Mark Kerry. We're going to see if there are any other rule changes that might satisfy players and coaches' desires while maintaining the flow of the game. Stay with us. Okay, Michael, what about something else we saw during quote-unquote COVID times and now we do not have in the Premier League anyway and that is extra substitutions the three subs versus five subs debate where do you stand on it? Well I prefer three subs I mean my argument is still that it favours the big clubs to have more substitutions technically you can say yes it favours the clubs whose backups are of a similar standard to the the first team Um, and that's not always uniformly going to be the big clubs but generally is I mean, there's no need for Burnley to have a second 11 roughly as good as their first 11 because they're not playing that many games. So they pile their resources into the first 11. If you're Manchester City or Liverpool or Chelsea and you have 20 more games in Burnley, then the squad is going to be more evenly distributed. So for me, it just clearly favours the big clubs. Um, But from the perspective of what we're talking about, I mean, the the subs do still take longer. If you have five rather than three, it does break up the game more. You only have the three slots, I appreciate but there's also a factor with, I'm sure we've all seen games where there's loads of subs and if you suddenly have 10 new players on the pitch, everything becomes so fractured and you've got so many players that are trying to warm up and get into the game. It does just become bitty. So I think mm. that is a, an issue to consider. In terms of the increased physical workload, the demands of modern day football, this is part of that conversation as well. Yeah, and there's a sports science angle here that I'm not sure has been explored and I'd be interested to see it explored because people have said there's a, a, a scientific reason sports science reason, player welfare reason, why five subs helps compared to three subs. But surely at some point you get to a stage where you've got so many fresh players on the pitch that actually half of the team aren't fresh and having to work even harder. I mean, to take it to extremes, if you have no subs at all, then everyone knows that they've got to play at a pace they can sustain over 90 minutes. If you have 11 subs, everyone can just run themselves into the ground for 45 minutes knowing they're going to be replaced. But when you get to a situation where half of the outfield is being replaced, you have five new players coming on to really pick up the tempo and five players who are just <laughs> you know, left there having to really strain themselves to keep up with them. So look, this is pure speculation on, on my behalf, but um, I don't think it's an entirely uh, ludicrous angle to come at it from. That's quite an interesting point. Uh, we've also got to ask about uh, potential, given that we're talking about potential tweaks to the way the game is, um, I want to come back to something that has been mentioned once or twice, and and that is uh, slightly different, but along the same lines, managers, modern day managers, of course because it's their job, are obsessed with control, having control of their players and therefore their team's performance, and there's been discussion about tactical timeouts 
there's been discussion about maybe uh, NFL style uh, headsets from the coach onto the pitch. I think in NFL they have a one-way radio which can go to one player on the pitch from the coach. Uh, in general, what's your stance on those things? Personally, I think... Again, I think part of football is is the balance between managerial instructions and the players kind of being left to their own devices and have to f- uh, figure things out themselves. So I think managers have more than enough influence over football games in terms of the preparation, in terms of the pre-match team talk, in terms of half-time, in terms of being able to shout instructions. I don't think, again, I think the rhythm is really important and I can't really see that there would be a benefit in terms of entertainment to break up the play, to give the players more instructions, not because I think there's too much tactics in the game. Of course not, far from it. But the rhythm thing is a factor. And it does seem to me just about managers wanting more control. And I think there might become a point where managers uh, and coaches and analysts people have so much control that it actually leads to a, a less fun game, basically. I mean, yeah, I don't have too much to offer in, in the way of insight, but it just feels like those sorts of suggestions kind of would make the game like a real-life game of FIFA, where you can stop or pause the game when you want to. You can control the players almost yourself. And it just would just move away from what we deem to be kind of normal about the game. And maybe that is just me being a bit fixed in my ways as well. But those sorts of extremes might just be a little bit too far. I guess it's the whole conversation is about the sort of disconnect, if you will, or the correlation between wanting everything to be better Uh, players to play better, to perform better for longer at a higher speed, um, just constant improvement to to achieve better uh, versus what's the sport about? What do we like about it? Why is it the best sport on the planet? And what could that, uh, that sort of race to be better do to impact that negatively? Those are the things that that are, are kind of, yeah, interesting to think about. I, I wanted to add uh, the last bit of this chat, a discussion about ball-in-play stats, because they always seem very popular on Twitter. You'll often see uh, the Opta analyst sharing a, that, that there was a, a match in League One where the ball was only in play for, you know, minus 10 minutes of the 90. And it always <laughs> captures the imagination because it is quite interesting. You know, a match is 90 minutes. Michael keeps saying, you know, it's about sustaining yourself for 90 minutes. But the ball isn't in play for anything near that amount of time, Mark, is it? No, I think one thing I saw recently was, yeah, the, the Mali versus Tunisia game in the AFCON recently. The, the ball in play was for the second half was just 17 minutes and 28 seconds, which um, was the lowest total at that time, which I just thought was, was remarkable. But I took a closer look into this and it certainly shocked me. I don't know whether it will shock other people as well, but the average percentage of time that the ball is in play in the Premier League, um, this season at least, is 56%. So if you think about that in terms of minutes, that equates to just 50 minutes on average of actual game time, which I thought was quite staggering. Uh, You just assume that it is going to be closer to maybe 75, 80 minutes. But yeah, I thought that was was remarkable. And obviously there's variation between the teams, which you can come on to in terms of who has it in play for for longer or, or less long. But it's, it's interesting to sort of use and look at the data of which teams are most, I guess, disruptive in terms of yeah, the length of time or disrupted in terms of the average time that they play a game. Uh, I tell you what it takes a long time, Mark. Lining up the wall and stuff at free kicks. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if you time that, from when the player go- is fouled, the referee comes over, maybe books the player, there's complaints around the player, you have to do the spray for the ball. You have to march out the wall. You have to do the thing. Honestly, it can be like two, you're waiting two minutes for 
you know, Cristiano Ronaldo to come up and hammer the ball <laughs> into the wall. It's an incredible amount of time lost. Michael, you quite like an in an in play stat, don't you? A ball in play stat. Yeah, I, I read a great article by a guy called Kevin Poulain who writes brilliant, brilliant stuff for the Racing Post. This was probably about a year or two ago. And he said at the last World Cup, and this is obviously excluding extra time, the longest and shortest games at the, the 2018 World Cup, uh, one was twice as long as the other. So one was 67 minutes and one was 34 minutes. <laughs> I think it was Spain versus Russia. It's certainly a Spain game where they had the ball in play for the longest period. I think the, the shortest one was Egypt against Saudi Arabia. Um, and I'm not particularly appalled that the percentage is only 56% on average. But I'm more appalled by the fact that teams can manipulate it so much that one game is twice as long as the other. That makes me think there's maybe a real problem. Yeah, instinctively, it, it feels wrong, doesn't it, that a football match should have, and this is at the extreme end, but only, let's say, 35 minutes of football. That doesn't feel right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I tend to agree. There is an argument. I think if you're inventing football tomorrow, I think you'd probably have a ball in play clock and you'd have half an hour each way or something like that. But it would just feel really weird to read stuff like, oh, they got a last gasp 70th minute equaliser. <laughs> just my brain can't compute it. And for that ludicrous reason, I think I'd probably not go for it. We so nearly got Michael to agree with a, a potential tweak to the laws of the game. He actually, I think, thinks that stopping the clock makes sense, but he still doesn't want it to happen. Interesting. <laughs> Mark, do you think this is, is, is there any way to suggest this is getting worse? You know, teams being savvier with their game management. Are we being shortchanged as fans? Are we seeing less football these days than previous generations? Yeah, it, it's hard to, to really tell. And I think it's, it's the little things like that, the time it takes to you know, to take a throw in, to take a free kick, those are quite difficult to sort of see in the metrics. But see, I don't have the, the numbers maybe historically, but I looked at just, I guess, how many fouls there the were per game as a proxy of just how much the, the players kind of disrupted. And the numbers looking across the, the past 10 seasons don't suggest that there's a there's a massive pattern in terms of that, which again, it's it's the, I was going to say unquantifiable things, but it's the, it's the little things that aren't necessarily obvious in the game like fouls um, that maybe contribute to, to that ball in play time. So nothing that I can see, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not there. Which Premier League clubs give fans the best value for money in terms of the amount of football they see? Well, it's interesting because you, you think that the teams who can control the game most are those who often have the most ball in, in play time. So Manchester City are the highest, um, Liverpool and Chelsea just behind them in terms of the longest in play time. Um, so they probably, yeah, fans get their money's worth with with those teams, which they sort of would do anyway, considering their their style of play. Um, Aston Villa are actually the, the shortest uh, amount of time in play, um, mm. 47 minutes uh, on average, so 52% uh, of the time they actually have the ball in play. And I looked as to why that might be, and they're, they're the most fouled team on average um, across the season. So maybe it's almost that they are disrupted more than they are disruptive themselves. Um, Southampton and Leeds are also right down there in terms of low percentage ball in play, which maybe they are more the disruptors themselves, given their style of play and high energy, high turnover. So the ball's more likely to maybe bounce around a lot. So interesting to see the, the top and the bottom um, and a really fun metric. It feels like the, the sort of speed of play, Michael, and questions of possession and fouls, all of these are the ingredients that go into a game with a lot of ball in play time versus a low one. 
Yeah, I think in general, possession football means the ball is in play more. I mean, you're keeping the ball in the centre of the pitch. Um, whereas long ball football means probably more balls going out of play, probably more fouls. I think pressing football tends to mean more fouls as well because there's more confrontations. I mean, one last thing to say about the if we were to switch to a ball in play clock, Ali, mm. which you seem very keen on. No, I just this, I just enjoy I just enjoy being the the advocate of the devil. <laughs> but there'd still be the, the the kind of aforementioned issue with rhythm because I think teams would break up the play still to interrupt momentum and that kind of thing, and people would say, "Well, it's fine now because there's a ball in play clock, so we're still going to have half an hour of football." But if that five minutes of football takes ten or fifteen minutes to get through, and football becomes like NFL or rugby, for me that is a completely different game, and and I wouldn't find it as enjoyable to watch and. I think I'm probably not the only one. There you go. Uh, Two very interesting topics, I think, anyway, although I am biased on this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The evolution of shots, um, prompted by Mark's piece on the Athletic site, and then a discussion about energy gel, stoppages, and more based on Dan Sheldon's piece. Dan covers Southampton for the Athletic brilliantly, as do so many of our club-specific writers, Mark and Michael, doing what they do best as well. On the Athletic site, please do subscribe, theathletic.com forward slash tactics is your best avenue of doing so. We'll be back again next week, as we always are. So please do join us then. And thanks for listening to this week's The Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The Athletic.